brothers and sisters, I would like to introduce you to a man named Job. I can't tell you a lot about Job. Uh, God just doesn't tell us a whole lot. Um, what I can tell you about Job, uh, I can tell you that he lived in a place called Uz, Uz, where that is exactly, uh, we really don't know. I can't, I can't tell you. Um, it, likely it's somewhere in the ancient Middle East. Uh, other than that, your guess is as good as mine. Um, but yeah, so he lived in a place called Uz. I can't uh, tell you exactly when he lived. Probably around 4,000 years ago, 2,000 BC, around the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that, uh, probably around that era, but it very well could be much, much earlier. I can't, I can't tell you a lot about Job, but I can tell you this. God really loved him. God really, really loved Job. And God had richly blessed Job beyond, beyond imagination. I mean, in that culture, in that time period, your wealth would have been measured in livestock, animals, servants. How many servants do you have? And how many children you have? That's how wealth was measured. And Job had thousands and thousands of sheep and donkeys and oxen and camels. And he had hundreds and hundreds of servants. So that his household wasn't just a household, it was a community. It was almost a village, all under him. And he had ten beautiful, grown children that he got to see grow up and succeed and thrive. The dream of every parent. God had made him truly the, the richest man in, in probably the whole world. And Job kept his priorities straight, too. Job was rich, but he didn't let his riches get to his head. God was always number one in Job's heart. And you saw this because Job would constantly sacrifice, make burnt offerings to God for not only his sins, but actually for the sins of his children, just in case. So his, his children would have a big feast, and he, he wasn't there, so he didn't know if they sinned or not. So he would just sacrifice animals for their sins just in case. Job was constantly sacrificing, constantly praying, and there was no one as generous as Job. If you were his neighbor and you fell on hard times, you knew that if you went to Job, oh, he was going to give you way, way more than you needed. There was no one more generous, more devout, more kind, more blessed, more gifted than Job. And Satan knew this. And so one day Satan goes to God and says, you know, your servant Job, does he really love you? I mean, you've given him everything he wants. You've given him more than anyone else. You know, he doesn't really love you. He doesn't really serve you. He just likes the stuff that you give him. But I tell you what, God, I tell you what. Take, take away his blessings. Destroy his wealth. Destroy his servants. Take away his children. And I guarantee he will curse you to your face. You know what God does? He says, okay, go for it. And God essentially says to Satan, you can do anything to Job. You can take away anything you want from Job. Just don't kill him. One rule, just don't kill him. You can kill his family, you can kill his servants, you can kill his animals, just don't kill him. That's my only rule. 
And of course, Satan, being the opportunist that he is, does exactly that. Just all in one day, all in one day, Job is out in the field and a servant comes to him and says, Job, I, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but every single one of your servants was killed by, by a group of raiders. And then another servant comes and says, Job, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but every single one of your animals has been either slaughtered or taken away. It's gone, all of it. And then right after that servant is speaking, uh, another servant comes and says, Job, I don't know how to tell you this, but well, all ten of your children were in the same house and they were having a, a, a feast. And a wind came and knocked down the corners of the house and the roof crashed on them and they're all dead. Just like that. A little while after, if the, the emotional trauma and pain weren't enough, Suddenly, mysteriously, Job is inflicted with huge, pus-filled boils that, that are so painful that he can't put clothes on, he can't sit down or lie down or stand up without being in incredible pain. And he actually takes a shard, a broken shard of pottery, and actually scrapes his skin and pops the boils because that is less painful than just letting them sit by themselves. Eventually, Job's friends, Job has good friends, and they come and, and, and they want to be with him during this terrible time, and, and they actually don't recognize him at first. Job is so disfigured that, that they actually don't realize it's him until after looking at him for a, a few seconds. And they can't, they, they, they can't even talk. They're in such shock over what has happened that they actually just sit there for a week and do nothing but weep with Job. But after a while, they start talking. And what, what started off as words of comfort and, and, and saying, Job, we're here for you, we're here for you, it's going to be okay, uh, turned into a debate. And, and this debate, uh, it, it was essentially Job's three friends versus Job. And, and the argument of Job's three friends is essentially, well, well, Job, God is completely good. Right, he doesn't do anything wrong. Jo God is completely just. He never punishes good. He always punishes evil. So therefore, Job, oh boy, man, you, you really must have done something wrong. You've got to repent. You must have done something because why else would God do this to you? But then Job, Job's retort, jo Job answers back, well, no, I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I didn't do anything to deserve this. God must have forgotten about me. God, God must not care anymore. God must be far off. God must really not be as good as he says he is. And this, this theological debate goes on back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for like 34 chapters. <laughs> Literally, the entire book of Job is essentially a theological debate between these two sides. And Job's theme, what Job says over and over and over again can be summed up like this. God, just come talk to me. God, just come, please tell me why. If God just could just come and, and just answer me, why? Why would you do this to me? That's all he wants. He just wants God to come and just answer him. Well, he gets exactly what he asked for. God shows up in the last part of the book. And we read from the, the book of Job, chapter 38. This is God's response. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the, the storm. He said, 
Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made it in the clouds, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set it doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their life, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwelling? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and to make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drop of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you lead forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who gives the ibis wisdom or, or gives the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie and wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven? when its young cry out to God and wander about for a lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home and the salt flats as, an, as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? W will it hill the valleys behind you? 
Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring, and bring it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare to the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot might crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a good share, a share of good sense. Yet, when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at the horse and rider. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side, along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, it eats up the ground. It cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of a trumpet, it snorts. Aha! It catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From there it looks for food. Its eyes detect it from afar. Its young ones feast on blood. And where the slain are, there it is. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. This is God's word. How's that for a response? I think, I think he got a little bit more than he asked for, right? <laughs> Where were you? Where were you? Do, do you catch the delicate hint of sarcasm in God's voice? But, but please, don't mean, please don't think that, that God was just being mean or that God w- was humiliating Job or trying to embarrass Job or put Job back into his place. That's, that's really not the tone of, of this language. God doesn't a- approach Job like an executioner with an axe going to a criminal. No, God approaches Job like an all-knowing, winsome, humorous father comes to his son, puts his arm around him and says, All right, let me teach you something. And he uses the entirety of creation as his classroom. Job, where were you? Job, do you understand how it is that the earth is in the exact right spot in relation to the sun so that life can thrive in a way that it doesn't really thrive anywhere else in the universe? Job, do you understand why the oceans stay where they are and they don't go wherever they want, that they actually have like a boundary so that people can live by that? Do you understand how that works, Job? Job, Job are, have you ever thought about how the rain and the snow and the thunder just know where to go? Have you ever thought about how the sun and the moon know where to go every single day without fail? Have you ever looked at the stars and thought, who, who, who's the one that tells them where to go? Job, if you can't understand 
even the most basic, fundamental elements of the universe in which you live, what makes you think you can understand me? Where were you? Does that question humble you a little bit? Does it kind of, okay, yeah, you know, that kind of put you in your place a little bit? It should, it should. But this isn't just a rhetorical question, because usually rhetorical questions, right, they're not meant to be answered. I don't think that's the case with this question, where were you? Where were you? Well, what's the answer to that question? Where were you? Where were you when, when God spoke into existence the entirety of the vastness of the universe that we, we don't even know about yet? Where were you? When God carefully and beautifully crafted every mountain, every hill, every valley, every river, every tree, every creature, every human, where were you? Job knew. And we know the answer to that question as well. See, later on, God would tell a prophet in just incredible words. He, he tells the prophet, before you were created, before I knit you together in the womb, I knew you. And I had set you apart to be mine. And Paul tells the Ephesians in the reading we just talked about, before the foundations of the earth, before anything was created, before there was time itself, God knew you. Where were you? You were in his heart. You were already unconditionally loved, infinitely chosen for a purpose. You look at the mountains, and you look at the, the vastness of creation, and, and beautiful thing about Nevada, you don't have to go far, but you see the majesty and the grandeur and the beauty of creation, and you see, wow, you know what? I'm small. I'm pretty insignificant. I am not in control. But as you look at the beauty and the majesty of creation, you must know if God would put that much effort and beauty and majesty and grandeur into a mountain, well, how much beauty and majesty and grandeur did he put into you? You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. Y your life is not just a random sequence of events that, that just kind of go as they go. No, 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 no. God chose you. God meticulously designed you with his own hand and beautifully and masterfully created you. You are beautifully and wonderfully and masterfully created by the creator of the entire universe. Know your worth. Know your worth. And this has countless applications. The number one, I can think of it. Sorry, who in your life do you really need to impress? Do you have someone in your life that you feel like you really need to impress? Do you have people in your life that you really think like, oh, I just need them to like my Instagram post or retweet my tweets or put the, that like heart smiley face on your Facebook post? Is there anyone in your life that you desperately need to do that? Or is there someone in your life that you desperately need to find you beautiful or attractive or desirable? Is there, is there a neighbor, is there a coworker, is there a boss in your life that you just want to please so badly and you just want them to think you're, you're, you're worthy? Don't you understand how valuable you are? Don't you understand the joy and the majesty that God sees when he sees you 
his creation. You don't need to be a slave for anyone's approval. Know your worth. That's part one. Right? God is the creator of all things, and therefore you. And that means something. But you notice what God does. God doesn't just stop there. He talks about his creative power, but then he also talks about his sustaining power over creation. God is the creator of all things, but he's also the sustainer of all things. And you kind of, you see this in God's argument, right? God first starts with like the big fundamental parts of nature, and then he kind of narrows it down to the things that Job would have seen probably every day. He says, Job, I'm sorry, but, but did the lions go to you for food? Are you the one that gave the lion the the ability to hunt its prey? The strength, the speed, the ability to see far away? Did did, did you give the lion that ability? Are you responsible for that? Job, look at that wild donkey. Are you going to go tell it what to do? Is it going to listen to you? No, it's going to hee-haw, laugh at you, and kick you from behind it when you're not looking. That's what donkeys do. Job, are you going to go to that wild ox? And it's interesting, the, the word for wild ox actually describes what, what's known as the auric, which is the ancient ancestor of the modern uh, cow, except it's, it was much bigger and much more aggressive, much more deadly. And God is saying, Job, are, are you going to go to that thing that if you get too close, it'll probably kill you? Is it going to listen to you? Is it going to be okay with plowing your fields and doing your dirty work? Do you think you're going to tell it to do that? you think it's going to listen to you? Mm-mm. No. And God is saying, Job... If you can't tame even the most simple parts of creation, what makes you think you can tame me? What makes you think you can control me? And God's also saying, Job, if you don't even understand and comprehend the wisdom and the grace and the love that I dedicate into sustaining even even the most simple, simple animals in creation, What makes you think that you are going to understand the grace and the wisdom that I dedicate to sustaining you? He's right. He's right. You can't understand God. I'm sorry, you just can't. God is too big. God will not fit inside of the logical box that is your mind. He does not conform to uh, your cultural values or your political agenda or whatever you think God should be. That's just not how God works. He's too big. God cannot be tamed. God cannot be controlled. God cannot be manipulated. God cannot be shaped and morphed into what you want him to be. But God can be known. And you might ask, how? How can the unknowable God be known? How how, how can I know someone who is unknowable? How can I see someone who is unseeable? I can't go to God. I can't go up to heaven and, and talk with him. That's impossible. No. In order for me to know God, God would have to come down to me. And that's exactly what he did. Years later after this, God came down to humanity again, not through a storm, not in a cloud, but as a human being named Jesus. God the Father sent God the Son, completely equal in his godness, completely equal in his eternity and power. And this Jesus, 
claimed to be God and proved that he was God by not only dying on the cross, but raising from the grave. And this Jesus says to you, those who trust in me, those who rely on my work for them, not their work for me, those who take shelter under my cross, those who trust in me, have a value, have a beauty, have a status, have a a righteousness that could never be earned. It must be given. And this Jesus called, you think about what Jesus does. He always refers to God as his father. And the result of Jesus' work, he says, those who trust in me have the same relationship, the same closeness, the same access to God the Father that I do. God the Father looks at you and he doesn't see your flaws, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the perfection of Christ himself and therefore treats you as if you were Christ himself. See, we call God our Father, not just because he's our creator, sustainer, protector. He is. But when we call God our Father, we are claiming something big, something profound, something actually really quite audacious. We are claiming to have the same perfection, the same beauty, the same access to God the Father that Jesus himself has. That's what you say when you say, God is your father, and because of the cross, because of the empty grave, that is absolutely true. All of that, what I just said in the last, like, 15 minutes, all that is what you proclaim to be true when you stand up and you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. God is my creator, he is my sustainer, and he is my father in the realest, most intimate way possible. And these truths have a lot of applications that reach into every single one of your daily lives. And I'm giving you a fair warning now. Some of them might offend you. Some of them might not sit right. And and I'm I'm telling you this because, number one, it it is never our intention to purposely offend anyone for the sake of it. That's never, never what we're trying to do. But God's word and God's truth must be preached. If God is who he says he is, and God infinitely and beautifully and wonderfully and masterfully created the entire universe, including you, who are you to challenge him? If God clearly says in his word that he created the entirety of uh, of the universe in six 24-hour days, and that he created humankind with his own hand from the dust of the earth, who are we to say, well, no, that's not true. No, it must have taken them billions of years. Oh, and humans must be, you know, evolved from apes. Who, who, who are we to say that? Just because science says so. And please don't get me wrong. Science is a wonderful, incredible beautiful gift from God. And God has richly blessed all of us through the advances and discoveries made from countless, countless, dedicated, brilliant scientists. But science can be wrong. You know, even 150 years ago, as soon as, you know, 150 years ago, think about that, 150 years ago, the leaders in the scientific and medical community were convinced that because women's brains were physically smaller, they were also less developed and therefore not uh, equipped for things like higher education or, or political leadership. Therefore, you know, they kind of just belong in the home to be moms. People actually believed that. And 
the leaders in the scientific and medical communities also believed that, again, 150 years ago, that things like morphine and cocaine were good, healthy, medicinal uh, things to give someone for like a toothache. And again, I'm not dissing science. Science is a wonderful gift. But let's have enough humility to understand that probably in the next 150 years, our descendants are going to laugh at us and our society for what, we, for what our scientists believe as well. When it comes to this kind of stuff, God is the creator of science. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe what he says. And so should you. And if God is the creator of humankind, and he put an infinite amount of creativity and love and purpose inside each and every human being, even the ones that we don't like, even the ones that don't look like us, even the ones that vote for different people, even the ones that are immigrants, legal and illegal, even the ones that are homeless, even the ones that are poor, even the ones that are outcasts, even the ones that are unborn and haven't been born yet, anyone that says that those lives are not infinitively valuable and beautiful, they're not just morally wrong. They're, They're not just wrong. They're by God's standard morally evil. And if God says, if God is truly the creator of humankind and and with infinite wisdom that we could never understand, created each and every single human body and human community, do you think that maybe we should listen to him and, and kind of submit to what he says when he says things like sex should only be enjoyed within the confines of a marriage between a, one man and one woman together for life and anything else that is not exactly that is physically and spiritually damning and destructive? Now, what I just said, I know, it might, it might be offensive, and I guarantee if people from our culture heard me say that, I'd be booed out of the room and probably canceled. I understand that. But this is simply God's truth. And also, kind of realize, cultural values can be wrong. Think about what our culture believed as, as good and right 150 years ago, right? It's kind of ugly. Think about a lot of cultures even today believe in, right? Our culture is not perfect. There are things that our culture has wrong. When it comes between what our culture says and what God says, I'm going to go with what God says, and so should you. And the last thing I want to say is this, and maybe you didn't know, I I think this is probably lingering in some of your minds. We've been talking all about what God said to Job, and he said a lot to Job, right? Like two chapters worth of of just stuff to Job. Do you notice what God never says? Do you notice what God never, never mentions? He never answered his question. Right? The whole time Job is asking why, 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 why? God never tells him. Is he being cruel? Is he being mean? Is, is he just playing with Job? No. See, the thing is, God knows Job better than Job knows Job. And God knows that Job really didn't need an answer. Because think about it, Job's friends had been giving him, an an, giving him answers that whole time, 34 chapters worth of answers, and it made everything way worse. 
Job didn't need an answer. Job just needed to know that God is with him, that God is on his side, that God is not punishing him, God is not angry with him, God is with him. Job didn't need an answer. He needed his father. And so do you. I don't know all of your struggles. I don't know all of the stuff that you all are dealing with, but I know that you all have pain in your life, or at least you know someone with severe pain in your life. And the first immediate reaction that we humans have when we're dealing with pain in our life is we throw our hands up to the sky and say, why, why, why? Don't do that. Don't do that. Because think about it, even if God did come down and explain why he, he took that person away, even if God did come down to you and explain why you know, he's having you go through this, do you think it would help? Do you think it would really take the pain away? Probably not. You don't need an answer. You think you do, but you really don't. You need to know this. God is not punishing you. God is not angry with you. God is not far off just kind of watching what you do as like a little experiment. God is with you. God is for you. God is at your side. And, and just like any good father feels the pain of his children probably more than they do, well, how much more will your heavenly father feel your pain? No, you, you, you can't understand God. You, you, can't, you can't comprehend him. You, he's not going to fit inside your little box. You can't tame him. You can't manipulate him. But you can know him. And because of what Jesus has done for you, you can love him. And you can trust him. Who is God? He's not just some far off creator, you know, guy using you like a puppet w without any emotional involvement. No. Who is God? He's your father. He's your all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving father. You can trust him. Amen. Well, uh, please stand.